To you, Father, we come in Jesus' name, thanking you for the beauty of the spring, but most of all for the beauty of the love of Christ that dwells in our hearts. Father, we live in a world that is uh, tortured by darkness, and yet in that darkness there shines a bright light, the bright of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, you have brought us into a place of understanding that gospel and being recipients of it, of being those that have been transformed by it. And I pray that in turn we will shine with that light in the community that you have placed us and amongst the people at work, at play, uh, family members, whatever, uh, that we will truly reflect the glory of Christ. And Father, as we study the portion of Scripture known as the Ten Commandments, that you will grant to us understanding, in-depth understanding of the meaning here and how it relates to the total teaching of Scripture and how these uh, statements, these words from God uh, relate to us individually. Lord, I thank you for each one in this room today and pray your specific blessing and ask that throughout this uh, campus right now as the word is being ministered in the service and in each Sunday school class that you will bless and empower according to your great will and plan. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to the 20th chapter of Exodus, the 20th chapter of Exodus. The first two-thirds of this chapter deals with what is called the Decalogue, the ten words that God spoke. And we have looked at the first five, the statement that is given in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. In verse 4, you shall, have, you shall not make for yourself any idol or likeness of what is in heaven or earth or <coughs> under the earth. In verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In verse 8, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And then last week, we looked at the passage in verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Last week we noted from the passage in Mark 12 that Jesus made the statement when, the, when, when he was challenged with the question, what is the truly foremost and greatest commandment? Jesus responded with the statement that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he added to it the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in those two statements, he summarized the Decalogue. He dealt with the very heart and core, the principle behind the Decalogue. And I asked the question last time, what does it mean to love your neighbor? And I think, as I noted, that at the very least it means that you shall not murder your neighbor, you shall not commit adultery with your neighbor, you shall not steal from your neighbor, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's possessions, whatever they may be. That's at the very least of the expression of what it means to love your neighbor. 
But as you read in the New Testament, particularly Jesus' words in what are known as the Beatitudes and the related passages around that, Jesus pointed out that it isn't that we just don't commit the overt act, but that we have been so transformed within that we don't even want to commit the overt act, that we don't even have the desire to murder our neighbor or, or to lie against our neighbor or any of these other things which are made uh, stated here in the latter uh, commandments. In fact, our desire needs to be towards our neighbor that we even pray for him in spite of the fact he may persecute us or seek to harm us in some way, and yet we are to pray for such a person. Now that is really, to me, one of the most extreme examples of what it means to love your neighbor because it's real hard to honestly and fervently pray for someone and at the same time want to punch his lights out, you know? Or, or want to steal from him, or to tell lies about. You just can't do it if you really, truly are praying for that person. Oh, it's easy just to you know, flip off a prayer, a meaningless prayer. But if you're really in earnest prayer for someone, God converts your attitude inside to one of love and concern for that person, and you recognize that if that person is persecuting you, if that person is seeking to do harm to you, it's because there is a power behind him that's driving him that way, not because he himself should be, therefore, the object of your vengeance. It is the evil one who is the power behind these evil actions in the world. Not that that absolves your neighbor from doing harm to you or his responsibility, but it's our attitude needs to be that the enemy is using that person to get at us, and it really isn't that person that we need to be concerned about other than to pray for him or for her and their deliverance. Verse 13, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The Hebrew word, which is translated here as murder in the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, which is what I use. I don't know what you're using here today. But if the, the meaning of the Hebrew word is exactly that, murder, as we think of murder. Now, if you happen to have the King James Version, you know that it says, thou shalt not kill. But the way we understand the word kill, that is much too broad a statement. It is not what this passage means. Because if it meant kill in the general sense of the word, then God has violated his own commandment. Because God ordered the Israelites to annihilate all the people as they entered Canaan, to wipe them out, man, woman, and child. God later ordered them to go to war against certain peoples and destroy those peoples. God then ordered capital punishment to be in effect in Israel for violators of God's commandments. And so if it meant thou shalt not kill in the broad sense of the word, then God is ordering them to do what he's ordering them not to do. I mean, you know, it makes God a very confused person, a being, if, if we look at it that way. All through the pages of the Pentateuch, we find that this concept is further elaborated upon and clarified, as are all of the Ten Commandments, because auxiliary commandments are given to, to fill it out, to flesh out the understanding of the Ten Commandments.
As we study this particular commandment, we're going to understand, I hope, what God's attitude is towards murder. I think one of the first things we discover is God will not allow murder to go unpunished. But also, we discover that God allows opportunity for refuge for the person who has committed unintentional manslaughter. And a, a very important passage in understanding God's attitude here is in Numbers chapter 35. Numbers chapter 35. I think um, the problem some of us face is that when we read quickly through the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we find a lot of, of statements in there that seem to be highly repetitive. But if you study them in detail, you discover that what they are doing is expanding on the basic truth that is stated. When it says, thou shalt not murder, you know, people can try to find ways around that. So what God does is further expand this through these other uh, books and the statements made there, and we begin to understand what is really meant. Reading at verse 14. You shall give three cities across the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan. These are to be cities of refuge. Now let me just say something about this before we go on so we get the picture here. When the land of Canaan was occupied by the Israelites, God gave to each of the twelve tribes a portion of the land. To the tribe of Levi, he did not give a region, but he scattered 48 cities amongst all of the land that was given to the other 12 tribes. He scattered 48 cities which were to belong to the Levites. Amongst those 48 cities, six of them were to be cities of refuge. Three of them were to be over in what today is the country of Jordan, across the Jordan, Transjordan as it used to be called, up in Gilead and, and along that side over there. The other three were then to be in what is Israel proper. Uh, one in the north, one in the middle, one in the south. And, and so that there would be a city of refuge within a few miles, maybe 20 or 30 miles from almost any point within the land occupied by Israel. Verse 15, these cities shall be for refuge for the sons of Israel and for the alien and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. Now, God goes on in the next passage here to explain, at least in part here, what he means by murder, and this, of course, then becomes distinguished from unintentional manslaughter. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone in the hand by which he may die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer, and the murderer shall surely be put to death. Or if he struck him with a wooden object in his hand, by which he may die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer, and the murderer shall surely be put to death. Now, by what means? This is the question. You know, they didn't have a court system like we have today, and, and you know, all the processes. Well, verse 19 tells us, The blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. This is someone who is selected from the clan, who is responsible then to avenge those who have been killed within the clan, usually by an outsider, but it could be by an insider also. And if he pushed him of hatred or threw something at him lying in wait, and as a result he died, 
or if he struck him down with his hand in enmity, and as a result he died, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The blood avenger shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity, or threw something at him without lying in wait, or with any deadly object of stone, and without seeing it dropped on him so that he died, while he was not his enemy, nor seeking his injury, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger according to these ordinances. And the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger. The congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with holy oil. You'll notice how God spells all this out specifically. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the border of his city of refuge to which he may flee, and the blood avenger finds him outside the border of his city of refuge, and the blood avenger kills the manslayer, he, that is the, the blood avenger, shall not be guilty of blood, because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. In other words, once the high priest is dead, then all guilt is gone. And the person can go back home and the avenger, blood avenger has no right, no power over him at all. And if the blood avenger were to kill him, then he is guilty of murder and would fall under the law. And these things shall be for a statutory ordinance to you throughout your generation in all your dwellings. If anyone kills the, a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of the murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. You shall not take ransom for him who has fled to the city of refuge, that he may return to live in the land before the death of the high priest. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are. For blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed upon it, except by the blood of him who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I the Lord am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. And that last verse tells us why all this has to be. Because I am your God, and I am dwelling in your midst, and I am a holy God and I will not live in the midst of a sinful people. That is, people who, who negate the law of God, who ignore the law of God, who don't abide by the law of God. I mean, all people are sinful, but, but a people who, who have turned to the Lord their God and are seeking to serve Him, God will dwell in their midst as He dwells amongst us even this day. Despite the fact that probably most of us are just a slight might shy of perfect, right? I think if we're honest, we'll have to admit that. So what we discover here is God very specifically spells out what is murder and what is not, and how you deal with murder and how you deal with, with manslaughter, which was unintentional. And of course, the person who is a man slayer unintentionally has to abide by the law too, or he puts himself in jeopardy. Notice how God provides. You know, this, you see this throughout Scripture. God lays down the law, but God provides out of His compassion for His people. That is why, of course, He gave to Abraham on the top of uh, Mount Moriah the ram to slay in the place of His Son. 
And that's why God gave his son to die in our place, because God loves us and God has compassion. But God will not ignore violation of his law. So his justice and his love stand in counterpoint. And yet in it all, God has been willing to go as far as to allow his own son to die, to bring justice and mercy together. And that's what we see throughout this. I mean, many people read the Old Testament and think, whoa, what kind of a God is this? You know, just kill him here, kill him there. No, You're not, we aren't really seeing what it says if that's what we get from the Old Testament. The mercy of God is, it just oozes from every page of the Old Testament scripture. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same one. And his mercy can be seen in this passage, even as we read it today, as well as his justice. We have a tendency today in, 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 in our culture to almost forget his justice and just uphold his mercy and his love and forget that he's a God of justice also. I mean, God is not just a big warm fuzzy who says, hey, that's okay, uh, you couldn't help it. I mean, uh, God expects us to live according, in accordance with his word. Well, let's look at some other passages here in the Old Testament that give us an idea of what God considers murder. If we uh, turn to Exodus again, uh, the 21st chapter, we discover, and, and of course we saw this in the Numbers passage, that an act of violence against another person is considered by God, which results in his death, is considered by God mur as murderer, as murder in verse 12 of chapter 21, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. And that, of course, is within the context of numbers. Strike him with an iron object, strike him with a wood object, strike him with a stone, lie in wait, whatever is what is being subsumed in this uh, particular verse. Or if it's a premeditated act, as we see in verse 14. If, however, a man acts presumptuously towards his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. In other words, if he flees into the very tabernacle of God and, and clings to the altar, you take him away and, and you, you execute him because he has violated my law. And God deals with attitudes of heart constantly. In Deuteronomy 19, we discover that if hatred is involved and someone dies, it's murder. Chapter 19 of Deuteronomy, beginning at verse 12, well, verses 12 and 13. But if there is a man who hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and rises up against him and strikes him so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities... Then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. In other words, you have no right in the city of refuge if because of hatred you have killed your neighbor. The city of refuge is only for the person who had no intention of killing someone. It was an accident. But if hatred is involved, it is no accident. And then also... Strangely enough, but actually wisely enough, obviously everything God says is wise, but in, in Deuteronomy uh, we dis, uh, chapter 22, we discover if carelessness is involved, it is also murder. Uh, verse 22, uh, chapter 22, verse 8, 
When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. Now, of course, you have to understand, we think of our houses, and of course, what's somebody doing on our roof? Deserves, you know, he deserves it if he falls off. In, in those days, the houses were all flat roofed. And people lived on the roof a good deal of the time, especially when it was uh, real hot. You got up there with at least there was a little bit of a breeze. And they had little lean-tos and they stacked grain up there to dry. I mean, the roof of the house was another part of the house in which you lived. And so if you don't build a wall around that to keep people from falling off, then you're careless and you're responsible if someone does fall off because you didn't care enough to take responsibility to build the safety feature around there. Ah. You see, God even is so modern as he's, you know, he's even took OSHA into account here. <laughs> you must build a wall. Keep people from falling off the roof. Carelessness, you see, is categorized with intent, as strange as that may seem. But one fairly war, uh, you know, to me, it's the very same thing as, for example, in our day today, drunk driving. I mean, there is no, to me, there's no excuse for that whatsoever, whatsoever. And if someone is killed, I think the person needs to be fully responsible for that kind of an act because, you know, today we like to make drunk drunks as if there's some kind of a disease or whether, hey, you know, whatever it is, don't get behind the wheel uh, of a car. That, that should not absolve or excuse anyone from causing another person's death. Now, the slaying of a murderer by the blood avenger is not considered murder. If the blood avenger rightfully slays a murderer, he is not guilty of murder. See, that's one of the reasons why you can't use the King James concept of kill here. Thou shalt not kill, because the blood avenger kills someone. Well, how can you rightfully kill and yet wrongfully kill? It, you know, it just, it's confusing. So we have to understand that the specific meaning is murder. And of course, neither were executions. If someone was executed for violating the law, that is not considered murder. Battle deaths were not considered murder if God ordered Israel to go into battle and they killed someone. That is not murder. None of those things are categorized in Scripture as murder. Now, let's go back a little bit to see how this commandment actually is a crystallization of some things God had said earlier relative to the concept of murder. If we go all the way back to Genesis and the first murder, in Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The very first major cop-out in scripture. And he said, well, second, I guess, or third, or maybe it's fourth. <laughs> When Adam said she did it, and she said the serpent did it, I guess those are earlier cop-outs. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, thou hast driven me 
this day from the face of the ground, and from thy face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and it will come about, whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Canaan, Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. And of course, all kinds of, of guesses have been made as to what this sign was. Scripture does not say. Cain was responsible for cold-blooded, premeditated murder of his own brother. God did not slay Cain immediately because this is the very first instance of murder. And so God rather used Cain as an example, branded him somehow so that all would know this is the punishment, living death. I mean, we're talking about living death here. This is what happens when you violate God's command to not lay your hand against your brother. But as time passed, God gave further revelation as to what was to take place. And so we go to the other side of the flood, the great flood of Noah. And as they come off the boat to begin to repopulate the land, uh, God gives to Noah a very specific statement. He says in nine, Genesis 9, verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he, that is God, made man. God told Noah that, an ex, that a murderer now is to be executed. And the reason given, in the image of God, God made man. God alone creates human life. He alone has the right to to take it. Anyone who presumes to take human life is playing God. And as we've already read, God will not have any other gods before him. No man, no man has the authority in himself to lay hands violently on another person whom God has made in his own image. So what are we finding in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6? We're finding the very first incident whereby God is delegating authority to government, if you will, to tribal leaders to act on behalf of God in capital punishment. I mean, we have this big battle raging in this country and have for many years about the question of capital punishment. And given, of course, the direction our country has gone, and the, the absolute fact that this country is shot through with the belief in evolution. So that, you know, a dog, a frog, a hog, they're all the same in people's eyes because, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're a boy or, or a goat. You're, you're still life, right? Just, and, and there's no more right to kill a goat than there is to kill a boy. Hey, you know, that, that is... You know, that goes right along with Mother Earth concepts, you know, and, and we're, we're being taken over in some areas by the old primitive religions of the, uh, of the Indians who lived here before. And, you know, it just does not square at all with Scripture. The old argument that capital punishment does not deter crime is one of the stupidest arguments that's ever been given. I mean, 
How many criminals have you ever seen who have been executed, committed another crime? Uh, not a one. The argument is, well, just because someone is executed doesn't mean someone else won't commit that crime because he might be executed. Well, that's, I don't believe that either. In the Middle Ages, and even in the, into the early modern ages, they used to publicly execute people, and I'm not advocating that at all. But those people in those days didn't have television sit and watch and get all their frustrations out on while people are being murdered all over the television screen. So they could actually watch it in real life, you know. There's absolutely no doubt that uh, capital punishment deters crime. You look at societies of the world uh, where they have a law system that really works and has a very always functioning penal code, uh, there's more order in that society than there are in societies where that doesn't happen or where they're always getting off for one reason or another and you have chaos. And that's of course what's happening in our society here. Chaos is slowly but surely creeping up upon us, that being one at least of the reasons. In many places in the law that God would give to Moses here on the top of Mount Sinai, we're going to see that God gave the authority to the leaders to execute people for violation of many of the laws, not just the law about murder. As we read last week, a person who struck his father or his mother, I'm not talking about killed them, but just struck them, was to be executed. Because the scripture says we are to reverence our parents. And now, you know, we can throw all kinds of things in, as we noted last week about, well, my father's a drunk and my mother's a prostitute or something else, and they're not worthy of my reverencing. God knows all of that. But it's not your business to bring retribution on them for their lifestyle. It's for you to honor them and to pray for them. And if we pray for them, of course, God can do wondrous things and has. The purpose, of course, of this and these other laws is to maintain order in society. Without such enforced order, mankind always has the tendency to degenerate to anarchy. All you have to do is study history and you'll see it happen over and over and over again. Look at the French Revolution, for example. Now, we don't have to talk about how wonderful the government before the French Revolution was. It wasn't wonderful. It was pretty bad. But there was order, at least. It may not have been fair, but there was order. Well, when the French Revolution broke out and the government fell apart and broke down, there was anarchy and heads rolled all over the place. Kangaroo courts popped up everywhere. And people were dying for no other reason other than they, that they mentioned the king's name at some point in time, other than in a curse. You know. And, I mean, it just became chaos. So bad was that chaos that brighter heads got together and reestablished a firm government and executed the leaders of the chaos. You know, Maximilien Robespierre who was the guy who led the reign of terror for a year and a half and was chopping off heads as fast as he could run the guillotine, uh, was himself guillotined. And, and, and then order was brought back, and a man by the name of Napoleon brought order by firing cannon right down streets in Paris. That cleared the streets in a hurry. And, of course, when he came to power, there was order in France, like there had never been order in France before because he ruled with an iron hand. That's not to say all was good, of course. But order, when it breaks down, results in anarchy. 
And anarchy is far worse than any government you can think of. Look at what's happening in Russia today. People are turning back to communists to put them in power again because at least under communism there was order. <laughs> you may not have had very many, much freedom and you, you may not have had the good things, but there was order. I mean, now without communism and they've got this government that's not functioning very well, they've got chaos. And crime is rampant in the country and pornography is everywhere. And the people are just so upset with it, they're willing to go back. Uh, why would anybody want to go back to communism, we'd say? Because the alternative, as far as they've known it, is far worse. Order in society is better than chaos, even if chaos implies a greater measure of freedom. Anarchy is really total freedom. Do what you want, when you want, to whomever you want. But actually, it, it ends up with no freedom, because your neighbor can do that to you. And suddenly, there's no one to turn to. He can beat you to a pulp, he can steal everything you got, and there's no government to turn to. It's might makes right. So even a poor government is better than no government. Well, the New Testament takes this commandment straight across. There's a couple of passages I'd like to refer to here. In 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 11, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning. Where have we heard it from? The beginning that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. For what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This, of course, means a murderer who lives out his life in an unforgiven, unrepentant condition. I mean, someone can kill another person and repent and truly come to God and be transformed and be forgiven and be in heaven upon his death. But this passage is talking about someone who lives his life with this hatred and never seeking God in his life. He does not have eternal life abiding in him. And then in James chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Meaning that the person who turns from his sin and repents will receive mercy and therefore in the end will not receive judgment for the sin committed. We might think that maybe that's not fair, but if we remember the heart of the law as Jesus gave it, the one who thinks in his heart, that is how he is. 
And the person who wishes his neighbor dead in his heart has murdered his neighbor. Now, the fact that he didn't actually carry it out is good for his neighbor, of course. But for himself, as he stands before God, it's the same. Because hatred is in the heart. And that hatred has to be forgiven. And there's not a person of us in this room who has not in our hearts or our minds at some point in time violated God's law. And so all of us would stand guilty except for the mercy of God. And so we got to be thankful for the mercy of God that even brings forgiveness to the person who carried it out in reality. And we need to pray for those who have committed murder, that they might come to know the Lord our God. We might say, whatever was the reality, most of you remember the whole Ted Bundy thing. Ted Bundy was a, a mass murderer of young girls for sexual, used them for ex sexual acts and then murdered them. And, and we don't to this day, I don't think, know how many. But in the end, at least according to his own testimony, he came to know the Lord and to receive Christ in his heart and to be forgiven of his sin. And we might say, that's not fair. The guy ought to burn in hell forever what he did. Hey, <laughs> we need to be thankful for the mercy of God. Because no matter how evil was that man's actions, none of us stands guiltless in our flesh before God. And, and as we read in this passage, to violate one of the commandments is to violate all of the commandments. And so our attitude, the scripture tells us to have this mind in us that was in Christ Jesus. And if we have this mind that was in Christ Jesus, he was willing to come and to die, to be spit upon and tortured, crown of thorns, nailed to a cross, for what? A bunch of dirty, stinking people, you know, who have done all kinds of evil deeds. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing, he said. And that's the attitude that's got to be born in our hearts, that we might have that same desire that no matter how evil the crime, we pray that God will transform that person because that's the most important thing that can happen. And let God be the God of justice. That's, of course, the thing that always... Uh, causes me to have a, a sense of hope is that in this life people may get away, it seems at least, with crimes and not be punished for them, but one day they will stand before God and there is not one thing they will escape if they have not come to know Christ. They will stand guilty before God of all of them. And the few years they may have had in this life when they got away with some crime, you know, how many crimes have never been solved? and the murderer or whoever it is still running loose in this society. Of course, we don't know what kind of hell they're living in, like Cain here, but we know they will stand before God, and God will not let them off the hook, because God is not a big granddaddy up there with lollipops for everybody, you know, uh, looking down, oh, well, you really couldn't help it, you know, it's because of your parents or because of your society. God knows it all, and God judges fairly, and, and God has already shown his mercy, and if we reject that mercy, then we stand guilty, and God will deal in all fairness. And as the scripture says, no murderer will go unpunished who has not been transformed by the blood of Christ. Well, next week, a lot of things to say about each of these um, commandments, so you aren't exactly racing through them. But next week, we're going to look at the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And this is a very profound one uh, relative to our society today, as you well know. And so we'll look at that next week.